This is CliffCentral.com. Health Hour on CliffCentral.com. Good morning and welcome to Health, Health Hour. This is Michelle Morehouse and today we are going to be talking about new thinking in HIV vaccines. I have a gift with me. Oh, sorry, a guest with me, not a gift. <laughs> I have a guest with me, Professor Penny Moore. She has a very fancy grown-up title. She is reader. Um, and National Research Foundation slash uh, Department of Science and Technology South African Research Chair of Virus Host Dynamics, and I'll get her to explain exactly what that means. And she's affiliated with Wits University and NICD. Welcome, Penny, and thanks for joining us this morning. Thanks, Michelle. Thanks for having me. I'm not normally referred to as a gift. (laughs) (laughs) People are normally less polite. Yeah, no, you're definitely a gift to us, Penny. So... Let's start right at the beginning. I said that you'd explain a little bit and explain to us in English and short words what that title means. Um, it simply means that I'm supported by the DST of the NRF who have a, a program called the South African Research Shares Initiative. And the idea of that is that they identify um, people to invest in in this country. And there are many, many Saatchi chairs now. Um, and they provide um, on long-term support. And that's exactly what a scientist like me needs to carry on playing in the lab. Sure. So, I mean, one of the things that, that um, my husband is a scientist as well. So one of the things I often find is that we um, call him a basic scientist and I'm a clinician. Mm. And yet I find that basic science seems to be anything but basically because most of the time when he speaks to me, he loses me after two minutes and I get this glazed look and realize that his words are flashing above the top of my head and going by at a rate of knots. So today we're going to talk a little bit about HIV vaccines. Um, and I'd like to kind of really start right at the beginning when it comes to vaccines. And if if you could just kind of explain to us what is a vaccine and how a vaccine works. Mm, sure. So a vaccine is a little different to um, to what we consider as a cure or a treatment. Mm. Um, so when we talk about treating somebody, we're dealing with somebody who's already become infected with, with a virus or a bacterium or something that will cause them some illness. Mm. When we talk about a vaccine, we're generally, not always, but we're generally talking about giving um, people who have not been infected yet an injection. And it's kind of a training ground for their immune system. The idea is that we give them a little bit of the bug, whatever that bug is, mm-hmm. and ask the immune system to be able to see it again so that when they are exposed to the real virus or bacterium or fungus, whatever, um, their immune system knows what to do to protect them. That's the idea of a vaccine. So it's a preventative measure. Great. Now, a lot of people will say, okay, I had the flu vaccine and I'm not having it again because I got so sick I got the worst flu I've ever had. Now, that's a myth because if you've had the flu vaccine you probably didn't get the flu you were in fa- uh, vaccinated with. So can you explain that? And please put that myth to bed for once and for all. <laughs> well, part of that re- relates, I think, back to um, this misconception that we all have. We, we all get the snuffles and sniffs and coughs, and we all say we have the flu. Well, man flu. <laughs> well, man flu is particularly bad, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so mostly we don't have the flu. Mm. It's the first thing to lay to bed. Mostly we have a, a common cold. Um, yeah. When you have the flu, you're really your man down, particularly if you are a man. Um, <laughs> it's 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 a much more um, severe, although short-term thing. Um, most of us are suffering from the cold when we walk around saying we have a flu, and it's a very South African habit to say we have the flu. Yes. Um, but of course, there are other reasons when people are vaccinated um, with the flu vaccine um, why they might still get flu. Mm. Um, and part of that is probably something we'll chat about more when it comes to thinking about HIV, is that flu, like many viruses, um, can change really, really fast over time. Um, and as you know, you probably need to get a flu vaccine every single year. And the reason for that is that we're trying to keep one step ahead of the virus. Mm. Um, so flu changes and very clever, important people um, try to make it their best guess, effectively, yes. about what the flu is that's going to come to South Africa. And based on lots of data, they try to predict which strain is coming. Strain is just kind of 
which flavour of virus, if you like. Yeah. And then we vaccinate to protect them from that. And occasionally, occasionally that doesn't go 100% correct. And so sometimes the vaccine that we've rolled out for a given year is mm. not quite as effective as it should be. But, I mean, to put, as you say, the myth to bed, mm. there is no doubt that having a flu vaccine is a good thing for the community. For sure. Thank you. So when you actually make a vaccine, you say it's a part of the bug, whatever that bug is. So what it, what part of the bug is it? Um, I guess it probably differs from, from bug to bug. But on, on the whole, generally, what are we talking about? Sure. So mostly we're talking about uh, the outside. Yeah. Um, the outside part, what we call the uh, the surface coating of... So I'm going to talk mostly about viruses, but it's the same principle for all the other bugs that there are. So when a, when a virus infects you, the immune system sees the outside. It doesn't necessarily care so much about the inside. Mm-hmm. And it tries to react to various proteins that are like kind of... If you consider a Smartie, for example, it's a sugar coating around the Smartie. Yes. Um, and what we try to do with a vaccine is we, we mimic a little part of that sugar coating and we give it to the immune system and we say, can you see that? Can you, can you recognize, can you make antibodies to it? And if you see the real deal, will those antibodies stop the virus from getting in? Can you explain what an antibody is? An antibody is like the coolest part of the immune system. Okay, <laughs> so I may be slightly biased here, but an antibody, <laughs> an antibody is a protein that your, your immune system makes that is able to bind very specifically hmm. to um, any bug that it happens to encounter, and not just bugs, to everything, everything we encounter day to day. The amazing thing about um, our immune systems is that they, they make antibodies by a sort of a random recombination events. So they take a whole set of strings, of, of beads and a string that's in your immune system and mm-hmm. they put them together in a random order. So your immune system has the capacity to make literally millions and millions and millions of different antibodies. And the idea is that you've protected them with this whole arsenal of little proteins that float around your body. And they can bind. Mm-hmm. They literally attach themselves to the bugs and stop those bugs from being able to infect you. Okay, great. So... Let's now focus a little bit on HIV itself. Why don't we have a vaccine against HIV yet? Well, there, there are lots of reasons. Um, probably the biggest reason is what I alluded to earlier when I was talking about flu, which is that um, viruses change really, really fast. Yeah. So we are all are familiar with the idea of evolution, things changing gradually mm-hmm. over time. But viruses in particular change much faster than anything else. Um, yeah. So I mentioned that with flu, we have to have a different vaccine every single year because it changes so fast and we're trying to keep up with the virus. In the case of HIV, the amount of variation, the number of mutations that the virus has managed to pick up is massively, massively higher than we see with flu. So if you consider, if you imagine the level of variation as a sort of a cloud, then the cloud of variation we see with flu in the whole world at any one time is the same amount of variation, the same size cloud of variation that we see in one HIV-infected person. Wow. It's orders of magnitude more variable. Okay. So what causes the virus to actually make these mutations? How does that work? So we all make mutations. Whenever mm. we, whenever we, what we call replicate, whenever we make copies of ourselves, produce babies in whatever form mm. that might be, we, we, we make mutations. And actually we need to because that's how we change to learn to adapt to new things. The thing is that we and many other things have ways of fixing mutations that have gone wrong. Yeah. HIV doesn't bother. It has a much um, it has much less capacity to fix its mutations, and so that means that it makes many more mutations, and it can try them out the whole mm-hmm. time. Okay, great, thank you. So, is I guess this is why it's been difficult then, because I mean, since I've been working in HIV, which is kind of my area of focus, which I've been working in for so many years, whenever you speak to people, people always ask me, "When are we getting a vaccine? When are mm-hmm. we getting a vaccine?" And since I've been working in HIV, the standard answer has always been, "It's at least ten years. It's at least ten years." So. Is it still 10 years? It might be. Okay. Um, 
but it might be sooner. Um, we have had, for the first time, we've had a glimmer of hope, I think, in the HIV vaccine field. For the first time, we had a vaccine that was tested in Thailand, actually, uh-huh. that showed some efficacy. So when we talk about efficacy, what we mean is that when we gave that vaccine to some people who are at risk of getting HIV, some of them didn't get HIV if they got the vaccine, whereas people who never got the vaccine would have got HIV. Okay. So it wasn't great efficacy. It was about 31%. Mm-hmm. Mostly for a vaccine, we hope to see somewhere around 80 or 90% yeah. efficacy. So nonetheless, it gave us really the first hope in a long, long time. I mean, we've tried in the HIV vaccine field, we've tried lots of different vaccines. There have been mm-hmm. five major efficacy trials, and those all include thousands and thousands of people. Um, and none of them have worked up to now. Mm-hmm. So this is the first glimmer of hope, and that really has reinvigorated the HIV vaccine field. For sure. Now, that trial was quite a while back, wasn't it? Mm, several years back now, about six six or seven years ago. Okay, and from what I understand, from that kind of a whole big program or a birth of almost a, a, a program or a vaccine type of initiative has come by, and so there's a lot of work going on in vaccines at the moment. Yeah, it's a hugely active field. It really, it really gave us hope again and re-energized the field and... Mm. A massive, massive amount of effort went into trying to understand how that vaccine worked, mm. um, trying to define what we call correlates of protection. Yes. So, so, so how do we make that vaccine better? Because you said 31% efficacy, and what what level of protection do we need? For HIV, probably we would consider anything above 50% as worth rolling out. Yeah. You know, we would roll it out in the context of many other interventions that we have in this country. Yes. Um, so it, we're not looking at this as a kind of a individual tool in the armory, but... In terms of how we're going to make it better, mm-hmm. um, so the vaccine that was tested in Thailand was focused on viruses that circulate in Thailand, what we call subtype B viruses. Yeah. Um, probably only you know, virologists care about these distinctions, mm-hmm. but the virus that we have here in South Africa is different. It's a subtype C virus. Okay. Um, so part of what we try to do now to make it better is to take that vaccine that worked in Thailand and make it match our virus better. I see. Um, so we tweak the bits of the coat of the particle of the viral particle mm-hmm. that we put in to try and make it match the viruses that we are dealing with here in South Africa more. So what I'm understanding from what you're saying then is that we have a va- if we had a vaccine here in South Africa it wouldn't necessarily work in Thailand it wouldn't necessarily work, work as- elsewhere and I guess that's similar to the flu vaccine because every year you have a northern hemisphere flu vaccine and you have a southern hemisphere one so does that mean that kind of for every global region or every geographic area you would need a different vaccine and then how would that work in terms of protecting people, for example, who maybe travel a lot? Or We hope that that's not going to be the case. I mean, mm-hmm. the, what we've learned over the last decade, really, is that there are bits of the virus that can't change that are the same whether you look at a subtype B virus in America or a subtype C virus here. And we hope that a vaccine can protect us against both. But there have been many people who have suggested that we may need what we call you know, region-specific vaccines. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess part of what we're trying to do at the moment is to is to see whether the vaccine that has been tweaked um, to match our virus works better here, and then we'll have some idea about whether we will need that. My hope is that we can get past that and provide what we call pro- cross protection. Yes. So that you would be vaccinated with a virus that, uh, with a vaccine that protects you against our virus, and it would still give you at least some protection against the viruses in America or Thailand or. So when we look at the vaccines that we're trying to develop here, I mean, some vaccines, for example, if you look at like the hepatitis vaccine, you have a number of vaccinations and then at some point you may have a booster. What are we looking at in terms of the kind of vaccines we may have for HIV? To be honest, Michelle, I think it's too far away to know that Mm. at this stage. Uh, You know, we most vaccines, as you say, require a booster to try Mm. and keep that level of immunity up. Um, But at this stage, 
I think we've taken a big step back from that in the HIV vaccine field. And first we're trying to understand whether we actually do have a vaccine that works mm. and trying to make it work slightly better. Then we'll get into these more logistic issues of how many times you need to administer the vaccine and whether you, where you need to give injections and how long between each of these injections. Okay, great. If any of our uh, listeners would be interested in calling in, I'm sure Prof Penny Moore would be happy to take your call or we can answer any questions you have. To contact us here at Health Hour, this is cliffcentral.com. You need to either call in at 0861 555 I'll give you that again, 0861 555 Or you can tweet at cliffcentral.com. You can also go on Facebook, Cliff Central, WeChat ID, Cliff Central. Or to send a message on WeChat, please tap connect, then message to show. So please feel free to send us or to contact us if you have any questions for Professor Pennyworth. And today we're busy talking about new thinking in HIV vaccines. Penny, I want to go back and talk a little bit more about vaccines in history because, I mean, it's been quite controversial and we've seen measles outbreaks happening overseas in the U.S., all on the back of people being very anti-vaccination. And yeah, and I know a lot of that has been put to bed because it was based on an article that was published in The Lancet and that has been retracted. But a lot of damage was done to vaccines and how people view vaccines. It certainly was. Yeah. So um, in terms of, of things like that, there were concepts that were spoken about which were lost, things like herd immunity because people, you know, the levels of vaccination went down. Can you talk a little bit about herd immunity, explain what that is, and, and does that apply in HIV? Yeah, sure. So, um, so there are two reasons for having a vaccine. The one, the first reason is to protect yourself. Yeah. But the second reason, and actually really the reason vaccines work, is that you protect the community more broadly. So the idea here is that if you can vaccinate enough people so that somewhere between 80 and 90% of people are protected from whatever that virus is, yeah. it, you effectively limit the options for the virus. Mm-hmm. So you, even if somebody does become infected, the idea is that they're then surrounded by people who have been vaccinated. Yeah. And so they can't transmit their virus to anybody in their neighborhood. And that really breaks the train of, chain of transmission. Vaccines generally tend to work best when you manage to get coverage over 90%. Mm-hmm. So what happened, for example, in the US was that, as as you've mentioned, there was this vaccine hesitancy and moms and dads started to worry about whether they should give their children the measles vaccine. And for years, actually, the numbers of outbreaks of measles in the US had declined to it was nearly, nearly eradicated yeah. altogether. Um, However, more recently what we've seen is that um, enough people have refused to take the vaccine for whatever reason mm-hmm. that that herd immunity now has dropped below that magical 80 to 90% yeah. threshold. And now what you have is mommies and daddies taking their little darlings off to a, a, a theme park in mm-hmm. Florida and and one child who manages to infect many other children because because there isn't that level of herd immunity anymore. And so I think this really speaks to why why we do need to get people to understand that it's more than protecting yourself, it is also protecting your community. Okay. So in terms of now, I mean, for example, measles is spread a little bit differently toward HIV. I mean, it's a respiratory droplet kind of spread, so it's much more easily spread within the community. Would you need the same numbers in terms of an HIV vaccine, given the way that the spread is so different? Uh, One of the strategies that that the HIV vaccine community thinks about quite a lot is targeting what we call key populations. Mm -hmm. So trying to focus on on groups of people who are particularly vulnerable. And I think there would be, I'm no modeler and I'm no mathematician, (laughs) but I think that there would be a huge impact if, even if you had a partially efficacious vaccine. So what I mean by that is a vaccine that works Mm. only slightly. Even if you had that kind of vaccine and you gave it to key populations who are really particularly at risk, and we have many of those populations in this country, then I think you could certainly impact. And you would combine that. You know, nobody's thinking about 
using an HIV vaccine on its own. We've got great treatment options. We've mm. got circumcision. We've got many prevention messages. We've got PrEP now, mm-hmm. pre-exposure prophylaxis, yeah. which I'm sure we'll get onto later. Yes. You know, we have, we have lots of different options for protecting people, but certainly take your vaccine into those kind of particularly vulnerable populations I think would be useful. So it's interesting you mentioned PrEP because it's something in my last show I spoke about um, HIV self-testing and one of the things that came up was that maybe in the context of pre-exposure prophylaxis, what pre-exposure prophylaxis means is that you actually take something like a drug um, for example, in malaria, when you travel to an area with malaria, you would take something against malaria to prevent you from getting malaria. And we have a similar thing now in HIV where you can actually take antiretroviral medications. So the ones we would normally use to treat HIV, you can actually take them in certain contexts to prevent um, getting HIV. And this is another area where we've seen so much over the last few years. It's just been a flurry of mm-hmm. data and it works well and it's really well tolerated. And I mean, it's been fantastic. It's revolutionized things. How does this impact kind of vaccine studies and vaccine research yeah it's it's a big question i mean the first thing to say is that i completely agree with you is that it's a massive massive advance Mm. this to have this option of of taking people who know they're at risk and saying to them take take a single pull Mm. every every morning and you can protect yourself and it works incredibly well i mean more than 90 percent of cases people are protected if they they take the drugs they're protected Mm. so it's a hugely positive thing and i should say that South Africa has really been one of the leaders in this. Mm. It's, um, you know, the use of Travado's PrEP um, was licensed here ahead of virtually every other country in the world, I think, with the only exception being the US. Mm. Um, so I think it really is uh, one of those moments we can be proud of in this country in terms of HIV prevention. Fantastic, um, yeah. But it certainly has a knock-on effect, for sure. Yeah. Um, so so I think maybe we need to talk a little bit about how vaccines are tested for, for yes. people to understand how, how PrEP will impact that. So... Generally, vaccines are tested in what we call a double-blinded, randomized, controlled trial. <laughs> <laughs> okay, nice long word. Yeah, nice long word. And effectively, what it means is that some people get the vaccine and some people get what we call a placebo. It's a sugar pill. And they don't know which one they've got and nor do the people who are monitoring them and looking after them. And at the end of it, it's unblinded mm-hmm. and you get to count the number of infections effectively in people who got the, the vaccine yeah. and compare it to people who didn't. And it's the safest way, and that's what we would consider the gold standard for testing a vaccine, because nobody can juke the system. Yeah. Um, however, it relies on a certain number of infections happening. Yes. Um, and that's part of the reason many of these kinds of trials are, are conducted in areas where HIV is hugely prevalent, mm-hmm. is because um, you need to count those number of infections in both arms. And if there are no infections, mm. you don't know if the vaccine has worked. Yeah. So PrEP adds a level of complexity to those kinds of trials because sure. we hope, we really do hope, that it will prevent most infections. Mm. So that will increase the number of people we need to follow over years yeah. to be able to get to those numbers to know whether the vaccine worked. Okay. So it's a problem for vaccine studies, but it's a very good problem to have. It is, I understand. I think maybe just to contextualize that, that when a vaccine study is done, it's not that you just hand over the vaccine and say, this is how you're going to protect yourself. Absolutely not. Yeah. So maybe you can talk a little bit around that? Yeah, these, these vaccines are, are normally tested in very well-established groups of people who've, been, um, who've bought into the idea that this is a useful thing to the community. But in return... It's our responsibility as researchers, and this is a, a major part of these kinds of trials, to, to try to reduce the number of infections as much as possible. Mm-hmm. So there's extensive counselling going on. There's provision of condoms, there's circumcision, and now there'll be PrEP. So we do our very best as vaccine trialists to make sure nobody mm. gets infected. 
Okay, great. I think now we're going to have a short break and we're going to listen to a tune and then we'll come back and have some more about new thinking in HIV vaccines with Professor Pennymore. This is CliffCentral.com. This is CliffCentral.com. Hi there, this is Michelle Morehouse, and this morning we are talking about new thinking in HIV vaccines. And my lovely gift slash guest is Professor Penny Moore, and we're having a great chat around HIV vaccines and where we are with those. So just before the break, Penny, we were talking about the um, studies, and I was asking about the pre-exposure prophylaxis, the PrEP. And one of the things I wanted to know is whenever we do the vaccine studies, we always have a package of prevention, and you spoke about that before we went to the music break. So will those... Um, prevention packages that we have in the in the vaccine in the vaccine studies now include prep my understanding is that they will do going forward you mm. know we the the idea of conducting these studies is that you do them in in the current best practices and there's no doubting that rolling out prep will become a current best practice in this country so i'm i'm sure that they will be rolled out, rolled out in that context mm-hmm. yes and then in terms of other ways of preventing infection with hiv i mean i know that vi- you're a virologist um, by by calling <laughs> so can you talk a little bit more about that about other other mm. methods for preventing well you know we we can fall back on the tried and tested um, prevention and through counseling um, yeah. and a lot of educational activities set up to try and um, let people understand what risk they are at um, yeah. but you know education is just one component of this thing so we have circumcision which is something that has been very actively rolled out in this country and, and taken up by enormous numbers of men mm. I know there were a lot of doubters um, when circumcision was proposed so circumcision has been very clearly shown to prevent to lower the risk of infection in mm-hmm. men um, and as a mom of two two boys, it's something certainly that I would recommend my sons do when they're old enough to make that decision. You know, I think the evidence that circumcision protects guys is is completely sound and solid. For sure. So that's uh, and I think what's been surprising to some is how many guys have gone out and gone gotten circumcised. Mm. I think it's the take up's been phenomenal, mm. and I think that's very encouraging. But you know, we also have. Um, very solid treatment approaches now in this country. Yeah. South Africa has the biggest treatment program in the world. There are more than 3 million people on treatment currently in South Africa. It's, it's a huge success story. Mm. And, of course, by treating people, you're also lowering the chances that they go on to infect people. Yeah. So f- before you're treated, you have huge numbers of viral particles floating around you in your blood, and that's how you go on to infect somebody else. But if you're being treated with antiretrovirals, and, as I say, 3 million people in this country are, then what that drug does is drops the level of viral particles to nothing. Mm. So the chances of you then infecting somebody else have also been dropped to almost nothing. Mm. Okay, thanks, Penny. That's great. And then, of course, we mentioned pre-exposure prophylaxis as well. So um, uh, that's another method we can use. So in terms of where we are with vaccines at the moment, what have we got kind of in development? So South Africa is really where a lot of this action is happening. Um, In part, that is because of the problem I mentioned, that you need to test vaccines in areas where HIV levels are still high. And sadly, our levels are still high. So I think people sometimes forget how how high those levels are. I work um, largely with a a cohort, a group of women in Vulundlela, which is a rural community just outside Durban. And in... In many studies now, we've looked at exactly how frequently those women are becoming infected with HIV. And I think that it's underestimated by many in the in the public. So if you look at young women aged 23 or 24 in that particular area, 
by the time they've reached that age, half of them have become infected with HIV. Wow. So these numbers are, they're real still. Yeah. You know, we're, we're, we're certainly winning the overall battle against HIV and our numbers of infections in the country as a whole are coming down. But it comes back to those kind of key populations that I spoke about, such as young women who are really at enormous risk in some parts of our country. Mm. And it's also quite interesting when you actually look a little bit more closely at those numbers because it's discordant when you look at the new infection rate in boys of the mm. same age. So, yeah. it's, so it's actually quite interesting to, to look at those, those data a little bit more closely. Yeah, so the rates of infection in, in young men are about a quarter yeah. of what they are in young women. And that's why we consider, and a lot of the work that we, we do is, is aimed at preventing infection of young women. Mm. They are a key vulnerable population in this country. Now, this cohort of women that you talk about, these young women, I mean, there's been a lot of research done within them, mm. from what I understand, and I think it's some pre- pretty exciting work around broadly neutralizing antibodies. Now, I've been Another asking, big buzzword. Yes, another buzzword. So can you maybe break that down and explain a little bit to us and maybe tell us a bit about the cohort? Yeah, with pleasure. So it's, it's the most extraordinary cohort. Um, mm. These are um, young women, some not so young now since we've been doing this together now for many, many years. Yeah. Um, but these women were recruited into the cohort. Uh, they live in an area where, as I said, HIV is hugely prevalent. Mm. But they were recruited into the cohort before they became infected with HIV. And they came every three or four months um, for us to test them. Mm-hmm. And at some point, they became infected. The woman that I've been studying became infected with HIV. And I think what's truly astonishing is that we we told them, the clinicians who managed the cohort told them that they'd become infected with HIV and asked them to come back nonetheless. Yeah. And they came back. That's amazing. They've been coming back now. They came back every week to begin with, and then the gaps become slightly longer, and then it's every month and now every three months. Mm-hmm. And some of those women have been coming back to us for more than 12 years. Wow. Every three months. I mean, it's an extraordinary level of commitment. It is. That's amazing. Um, you know, they, I think they've contributed enormously to HIV vaccine science just by being willing to show that level of commitment and to let us take their blood and store it away in freezers. And now, you know, nearly 15 years later, we can go back and say, gosh, that's an interesting result. Let's go back in time Mm. and see how that happened. And that's only because of those women who kept coming back again and again and again. They're an extraordinary group of women. Can you explain simply what it is that you're doing? And that's, you know, when you're storing their blood all the time, and what are you looking for? What are you looking at? What mm. are you seeing? So the, the group of people that I work with, and it's a fantastic group of people at the National Institute for Communicable Diseases, mm. we're interested particularly in understanding what the immune system does when these young women become infected with HIV, Mm -hmm. how their immune system deals with it, because it's certainly not passive. It's a hugely active immune response. It's just they don't win in the end. And so what we do is we try to understand where their immune system succeeds Mm -hmm. and where it fails. I see. And we try to translate those kinds of findings into something that we can then use to develop a vaccine, which we can give to people before they become infected with Mm -hmm. HIV. Penny, can you explain a little bit more? Because, I mean, often we, we use a vaccine because it, it gives us an antibody response, and then the antibody response tends to sort out generally most infections. Why not in HIV? So one of the, the, the major problem, I guess, in HIV is once you become infected with HIV, that it's a very clever virus, mm. um, and it hides mm. um, in what we call reservoirs. Okay. So it tucks its, it tucks its very genetic material into our cells, and it hides that way from the immune response. So although we can give antiretroviral therapy, you know, these drugs that we're talking about, and they'll drop the numbers of free viruses Mm -hmm. floating around our blood, you're still left with that hidden pool of viruses that are buried deep in our cells. And because they're buried in our cells, our immune system can't see them. And the minute you stop taking antiretroviral therapy, those viruses pop back out again and you start the process again. 
All right. So we're just going back to the question of the broadly neutralizing antibodies. Well, if I can get my tongue around it. <laughs> so, um, so I said to you that um, that people's immune responses are not passive. They're not passive at all. When yeah. people become infected with HIV, they make a huge number of antibodies. Mm-hmm. But most of those antibodies are what we call strain-specific. So my antibodies would only recognize my virus. Mm-hmm. Um, it only recognizes those parts of the virus. It wouldn't recognize anybody else's virus. More recently, we've discovered that some people who, after many years of infection, are able to make what we call broadly neutralized antibodies. And these are the kinds of antibodies that are able to see my virus as well as many other people's viruses, up to 99% of different viruses from across the world, mm-hmm. whether they're subtype A, subtype B, subtype C. So they target the bits of the virus that can't change. They're the bits of the virus that make HIV, HIV. Okay, so that was something you alluded to a little bit earlier, that in some people there are regions of the virus that are pretty constant and so you can target there. Yeah. Okay. There are, there are bits of the virus that are required for it to, to keep its function. Yes. So, for example, there are the bits of the virus that are needed to get into the cells mm-hmm. can't change. Okay. Otherwise the virus can't infect. So there are bits of the virus that cannot maneuver quite as readily as other bits, and that's what broadly neutralizing antibodies target. Okay. So where are we with broadly neutralizing antibodies in terms of vaccine research? Another very, very active field. Um, you know, we, we've, what we've been able to learn from those people who do make these kinds of antibodies and what we can do is take that antibody and clone it out so that we can make lots in the laboratory. Mm-hmm. And what we know is that if we take that antibody and put it back into an animal who's, who's uninfected with the equivalent of HIV, mm-hmm. then that antibody works. It protects them from HIV. So we know it can work. Yeah. What we don't know is whether it can work in humans. And that's something that's going to be tested this year in South Africa as well as in the U.S., and we can come back to that. But in terms of vaccine research, what we're trying to do is get the immune system to do the work. Mm-hmm. So we know that there are these kinds of antibodies that we need. We know they should work. What we need to do now is learn how to persuade the immune system to make them. Okay. And that's been a hugely active field of research. Okay. So do you want to come back to what you were going to come back to? Uh, <laughs> so this was the idea of using these antibodies. So as I said, a vaccine asks ask the immune system to do the work. Mm. Um, so we've tried quite hard to do that. Um, but so far we haven't quite mm. got the immune system to do exactly what we wanted to do. But what we could do now is take those antibodies that we've cloned out of people yeah. and bypass the immune system. We can protect people, we think, just by taking that antibody and injecting it directly into those people and saying, here's the fully formed antibody. Your immune system can relax. You don't need to do any work. Here's the antibody. It should protect you. So how would that work? Because, I mean, should you? <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. How would that work, though? I mean, would that be a one-off injection? Would it be multiple injections? Mm, that uh, is the problem. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so at, at the moment, the way we think about it is that we would have to give an injection every two months or mm-hmm. so, which sounds difficult, um, but is not impossible for yeah. sure. So the, there's a huge uh, trial of this starting. It's called the AMP trial, Antibody Mediated Protection. Yes. It's going to be starting hope, this year, hopefully in South Africa and in the U.S. And the idea here is that we take... One of those preformed antibodies, which has got the very unsexy name of VRCO1, and we inject it into women at high risk of infection. Mm -hmm. They're going to come every two months, and we're going to inject that antibody into them. And then we'll monitor them in the same way that we do in other randomized controlled trials and see how many people who receive the antibody are protected. Yes. So there'll be three groups in this case. There'll be the people who do not receive the antibody Mm -hmm. but receive all the counseling and every other tool we can give them to protect themselves from HIV. And then there'll be two groups who get two different doses of the antibody. And at the end, we'll count how many infections there are in each group, and we'll see whether that antibody protects. I do believe it will. Okay, fantastic. That's great. Okay, so, I mean, that sounds pretty exciting. Um, 
in terms of the numbers of a study like that, what numbers would you be looking at? To do a study like that, you need more than 5,000 um, people. Um, to do a vaccine trial, you need 5,000 people. In the mm-hmm. case of the VLCO1 trial, the trial I've just mentioned, it'll be 500 people in each of the three arms. So it's, it's large numbers mm-hmm. of people for sure. So we've mentioned some diversity in viruses, and you say that with these, this, this is a broadly neutralizing antibody. So it looks at the more constant regions. So I guess what people in the U.S. would be getting would be the same as what people in South Africa would be getting, and you wouldn't necessarily expect to see huge differences between the responses in the two countries when it boils down to what the pure response to the vaccine is without the other confusing factors thrown in. Yeah, so so remember this isn't a vaccine in the sense that we think about a yeah. traditional vaccine. This is what we call a, a passive immunization approach. So mm. we, again, we're, we're letting the immune system off the hook mm. in this particular case. But um, the antibody that we're using in this trial, this VRCO1, has been very well characterized mm. and we know it's able to neutralize viruses from really across the globe. So we hope it'll work just as well here as in the US. But I should also mention that you know, a lot of the antibodies that we're pulling out of those women I've told you about in the in the Caprice Courts and Villandlela. Yes. Those are antibodies that are extremely good at neutralizing HIV, especially our HIV that we have here in South Africa. Mm-hmm. And so there are huge plans afoot to take antibodies from the from South African individuals that have been cloned out here and work against our virus. Yeah. And in the same way put them into people passively and ask whether they protect. Fantastic. So in terms of, I mean, you mentioned this is like a passive immunization strategy. And, I mean, that's not a new strategy. We've used that before. Not Can you all. talk a bit about where else we use passive immunization? Yeah, I mean, this this goes back many, many ways, many, many years. Mm. Passive immunization, as you say, has been around for donkey's years. Actually, passive immunization against infectious diseases um, is probably less common at the moment, mm. where we see a lot of monoclonal antibodies. So when I talk about a monoclonal antibody, all I'm talking about is a single antibody that we've cloned out of somebody. Um, where we see those used hugely is in uh, cancer therapy mm-hmm. and in uh, autoimmune therapies, where their monoclonal antibodies are in the clinic very much so being rolled out frequently and lots of people are on treatment. Yeah. Um, in terms of infectious diseases, the the best example at the moment is um, an antibody called Synagis mm-hmm. that's used to treat babies who have um, Ras sarcoma virus, yeah. which can cause them um, to have horrible um, chest infections and Synagis or palivizumab is its other name. I have <laughs> to think hard name. before I pronounce <laughs> these things. Um, is used and is very effective at mm. preventing these these horrible chest infections that kill lots of kitties. So there's there's a long precedent for using these mm. kinds of antibodies. Okay, great, thank you, Penny. We've spoken a bit about prevention and vaccines. I was wondering, would you mind if we spoke on what the other hot topic in HIV is? I mean, that we're would be the cure. That would be the cure. <laughs> and yeah. where are we with that? I mean. Is it a reality? Is it pie in the sky? And maybe perhaps just explain to listeners the different types of cure there are in terms of what there is as a functional cure and, mm. and perhaps. So a cure is very different to a vaccine, obviously, because yeah. in the case of a cure, we look at people who have already become infected with HIV. Yeah. So, so people, the vaccine field is largely focused at this stage. It changes. Yeah. But at this stage, the vaccine field is largely focused on preventing HIV infection. Mm. But as I said to you, we have millions of people infected. For sure. Um, so, there is um, a huge effort, an international effort underway to think about curing people with HIV. The major challenge to curing people is comes back to what I was talking about, is that the virus hides. Yeah, It's this reservoir of what we call latently infected cells where the virus is hiding. And so people hoped for a long time that if you kept an HIV-infected person on antiretrovirals mm. for long enough that you would gradually deplete that reservoir. And that probably would occur if you lived to be about three or 400 years old. Okay. But the problem it hap- is it happens too slowly. Mm. So we're never able quite to get rid of that, that hidden stock of virus, if you yeah. like. 
So the, the different forms of cure that the field is talking about are what we call um, a functional cure. Yeah. In, in the case of a functional cure, we, we're not aiming to get rid of every single little viral particle and infected yeah. person. We're just aiming to give the immune system enough help that it can keep those very few left viruses under, under control. And that gives you a normal life. Yeah. The virus remains buried. I think, I think that is perhaps a feasible option. Yes. I do think that getting rid of the virus altogether is going to be much harder. It's a very clever virus that has evolved over many years to hide very effectively from mm-hmm. our immune system. It is. Can you talk about where it hides? It hides, well, it, it, it hides in multiple cells, mm. um, and the, the, it hides in cells that don't themselves, are not very productive cells. So they're um, quiet cells that don't turn over very fast. So not skin cells, because your skin, skin cells, changes no. constantly all exactly. the time. Yeah. But other cells like maybe um, nervous tissue? Sure. Um, and, in fact, adipose tissue. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, any of these, those kinds, uh, yes. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> any, any of those <laughs> kinds of tissues um, that, that, st- mm. that stick around in your body for a long time. And that is the problem with, the, with these reservoirs is that it's, it's, you can't, it's not a waiting game. You can't just wait for those cells that have got the virus in them to die. Mm. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. So, Penny, then, thank you for that. Um, just going back to, to the vaccines, I have another question, which is not really a trick question, but really, I mean, we've come so far. We've got treatment as prevention now. It hasn't quite been rolled out in South Africa, but as you mentioned, we've got this huge program, which is doing pretty well. We've still got a lot more people to get on treatment, even by our current guidelines. And then we've had huge, big studies that have come out in the last 12 months saying that actually the way to go is that um, if you get diagnosed with HIV, go on to treatment straight away because that has not only a public health benefit because you soon become uninfectious because your viral load is undetectable, but also it has now we've finally shown with those two big studies that came out last year that actually has benefits for the individual who's infected themselves. So you want to know, do we need a vaccine? Yeah. Why do we need a vaccine when we've got that? Um, it's a question that comes up very often. Mm. Um, and I think, I think we do need still an HIV vaccine. Mm. You know, part of it is that, um, that just the sheer cost yeah. of Keeping everybody on treatment is an enormous economic burden, especially for a country like ours where we're dealing with millions, millions of people. For sure. But on a more personal level as well, for the people who are taking these drugs every day, you know, some of these drugs have side effects that are not fun to live with. Yeah. Um, you have to remember to take the drug every mm. single day. Now, those of you who, who take antibiotics and, like me, feel better and forget to take the rest <laughs> of your antibiotic course, I mean, this is a lifetime long of antibiotics, effectively. Mm. And I think there's huge risks there, and, in fact, we, we see it. Yeah. That people will forget to take their drugs um, when they're feeling healthy, sure, um, and that's when the virus takes advantage of that situation and becomes resistant to the drugs in the same way that we're dealing with resistant um, bacteria. Mm-hmm. So the the tools that we have in the drug resistance armory mm-hmm. um, may become less effective over time if we stop taking the drugs. And I think I, I think those reasons altogether. Yeah, and the fact that a vaccine hopefully will be taken would be one shot or two shot or three shots, mm. and that's it. Mm. You're protected. I still think that, although it's a tough road for sure, mm. I still think that we do need to pursue the idea of a preventative HIV vaccine for sure. And I guess the other area as well where we need to look at is maybe in terms of vaccines given around that you know in childhood as well, where at a time where you know we do all of the different vaccinations that we do to protect children because they're not necessarily able to protect themselves. Yeah, um, I mean the, the you know the wish, the hope, is yeah. that one day it'll just be part an HIV vaccine will be part of our standard. Panel of vaccines that we give our kids, um, roll it out. For sure. That's, that's the hope one day. But I, you know, it is a fair way away. 
Um, and I think in the meantime, we have to keep working towards it. Mm. And there's a huge amount of work going on. And South Africa really is leading leading parts of this research. Mm. But I think we also have to remember how well we're doing. Yeah. And it's sometimes, you know, when I sit here and I say to you that, you know, half of young women in Vulundlela are infected with HIV, it's sometimes hard to remember how well we're doing. Yes. It is. It is very easy to actually get caught up in the negativity and and not and to lose sight of the fact that we are three million people on treatment. We have got so much good that is happening. I mean, there's been a huge difference, and I mean, people like you make a huge, huge difference. Maybe I wasn't wrong with the gift. <laughs> there are a lot of lot of people working very hard, and I, I think that's something to something to be proud of. And of course, to thank these women who are involved in cohorts like this with their dedication. I mean, that's fantastic. It's it's just the most incredible commitment, and I I, I think the kind of science that many of us are trying to do really wouldn't be possible without this. And I do believe that in the long term, it's those samples that are sitting in the freezer that are going to give us a vaccine. For sure. Penny, can I ask you one last question? I'm just interested in knowing how you got into all of this, if you don't mind. (laughs) Fell in love with the viruses. Isn't that sad? I have kind of the same thing. You know, people say to me, what's your passion? What interests you? And I say HIV and they look at me as if I'm mad. But yeah, you know. (laughs) Viruses are really, really cool. They are fascinating. They're little pockets of almost nothing. Mm. Um, and yet they wreak havoc. Yeah, they um, do. They wreak absolute havoc, so it's hard not to get addicted to viruses. It is. I mean, it's like this major organism doesn't even have a brain. And yet, yeah, they do wreak havoc. They are pretty interesting things. Okay, thank you very much for joining me today, Penny. Um, it's been pleasure. such a pleasure chatting to you, and um, I've learned a huge amount, and I'm sure so will our listeners have. Um, a pleasure. Thank you very much. Health Hour on cliffcentral.com. This is cliffcentral.com.